On June 5th, 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower was uh, photographed as he spoke to paratroopers as they prepared for the next day's Battle of Normandy. Those at the 101st Airborne Division Camp in uh, Greenham Common, England, heard their commander say, full victory, nothing else. That objective and order helps us to visually parallel what Jesus said to the church and for the church. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and we'll read the context of what's going on along that. Um, so if your Bible and you want to follow along, um, open to Matthew chapter 16. Because in this life, we know that the stakes are high and the risk is great, and oftentimes we are reminded of how volatile and how short and just how much we are not in control of life here. And the commands from uh, General Eisenhower, full victory, nothing else, is really what Jesus tells us, and it parallels what Jesus says here. Now, before I go and I read the whole thing, let me just read one verse for you. Um, If you go down to verse 20, and you just read that by itself, I'll give you a good example of what not to do in reading the Bible. Matthew 16, verse 20 says, and he, it's talking about Jesus, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's what it says. Hopefully that's not your favorite verse. If that's our favorite verse as a church, we get ourselves in trouble. If you pick it up and you read it, it says, well, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 20 says, and he, Jesus, strictly told the disciples to tell no one he was Jesus. All right, you're dismissed. We don't have anything to do. All right, that's a good example of what not to do reading the Bible. If we just take one verse and we pluck it out of its context, we can twist it to mean something that was never intended. I talked about that some last Sunday I'm from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 18, I believe it says, it says, therefore, brothers, encourage one another with these words. And we have to figure out why that therefore is there. Then you go back in and read the verses above that. Paul was talking to the, the church in Thessalonica. And they were worried that those who had died already in Christ were going to miss out on the second coming of Jesus. And so Paul goes on to explain the hope that believers have, not just in life, but in death. And how Jesus will come back and the dead in Christ will come back with him and we'll rise up to meet him in the air. And then we'll all come back down here to party on earth for the rest of the time. Not worldly party, but the way that God intended it with no sin, none of that bad stuff. So it's kind of an obvious thing. I mean, you wouldn't do that. If we're going to pick up our Bibles and read from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 20, you can go, oh, Jesus told the disciples, and we're disciples, right? We want to be disciples who love God and others, bear fruit, and equip others from service. That's what we define what a disciple is. Well, Jesus says, tell the disciples strictly, tell no one that I am the Christ. Well, (laughs) that is what he told his disciples he was talking to right then, but that wasn't a binding command for all of us, but it's a part of the story because we know the rest of Scripture teaches differently. And really, Jesus gave his commands to go and to tell and to baptize and to teach people everything that we have been taught so that they can experience the love of Jesus, so that they can know what it means to be not just show up at church, but to be a part of the church, to be a part of this vehicle that God chose to help people come into a saving relationship with himself. People need to know, they need to be told. That's just kind of an obvious example of what not to do, but there's other places in Scripture where we could just grab a verse and it'd be really easy to intentionally twist it, or the hard part is sometimes it's easy to unintentionally do that if we divorce the text from its context. So clearly, that's not, Jesus isn't telling us not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. 
So let's see what it says. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, honestly, still verse 20 is a little bizarre when you read it. I mean, Jesus wants everyone to know. Scripture says all, God desires all to have a saving relationship with him, that they repent and they realize who Jesus is. God does not want to exclude anyone. He wants to include all of us, but we're the ones that choose to exclude ourselves from the kingdom of God through our sin and through our stubbornness and our hard-headedness. But what Jesus is doing, and the best explanation I can give for why he told his disciples right then, because he asked them a couple questions. He asked them a general question, and then he asked them a very personal question. Is that Jesus knew that he had things that he needed to accomplish, and he was already having crowds that were coming around him because of his miracles, because of his teaching. Can y'all just stop for a minute? Can you realize how infectious Jesus would have been as a person? Have you ever been around some of those people that you just love spending time with them? You want to be around them. They encourage you. They shoot straight with you. You know that you can trust them. You know that you can rely on them. And there's just something that puts you at ease being around him. Yet Jesus knew he had things that he needed to accomplish. And this isn't the only time in Jesus' life where he goes and he performs miracles. And he says, shh, shh, Abby, shh. It's one of the little tricks that she does sometimes. Yeah, yeah. My friend Josh does that sometimes too. <laughs> but here he strictly charged him not to tell anyone he was the Christ because they were, people were going to find out. There were ways, and Jesus knew. But there were things that Jesus knew he did not want to be distracted from. He had to invest in his disciples more because they needed it, because it's these men and these close followers that Jesus used to start, then found and establish the church, imperfect vessels, because if God waited for a perfect vessel, it would never happen, and we wouldn't be here. Even from the very beginning, we know, uh, you guys know your shortcomings. I know my shortcomings. Sometimes we share in knowing each other's shortcomings, but the disciples, a lot of their shortcomings are played out here in the pages of Scripture. But God still chose to use them. And we see what he did is that Jesus asked a general question. That's the easy question, right? All right, class, give me an example of someone who did something dumb. All right, that's an easy question to answer, right? All right, class, now give me an example of when you did something dumb. All right, that's a harder question to answer. Some of us relish in telling those stories for a variety of reasons. But here's what Jesus did. The first question is pretty easy to answer. Well, what have you heard that other people say that I am? Oh, I heard this. My cousin said this. My grandma told me this. My neighbor said, you aren't who you claim to be. 
And they gave some examples, but then Jesus asked a harder question, and this is a question that matters because it never matters what other people say about Jesus and who he is. Y'all, what always matters is what you say about Jesus and who he is because that first question is easy to answer on behalf of other people. Oh, you need help moving? Yeah, I'd love to be there. I'll get a bunch of people. Or, but then you have to, have to show up there and help yourself or do things yourself. The second question, who do you say that I am? And Jesus directed that question at his disciples, and Peter was often the first one to speak up. And he messes up sometimes, but he didn't hear, y'all. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. For what you have said is true, and your name is Peter, and on this rock, and the word Peter and Cephas means rock. I will build my church, and the gates of the evil one will not prevail against the church. What did General Eisenhower say to his troops? Full victory, nothing else. Now, I'm sure if that quote is not historically accurate, Tommy will tell me about it later. It's what he does. That's why we have him, among other reasons. That and to tell me when I mess up at math which happens usually when I talk about numbers. (laughs) What Jesus tells us as a church, y'all, is that full victory, nothing else. There are no other options. There's no other viable options anyway. This side of heaven, we're all learning. We're a work in progress. When thinking about learning and her role as a professor at Stanford, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice explains the process of learning to her students this way. She says, it's not my job to make you comfortable. Actually, it's my job to make you uncomfortable. And I think the nugget of truth that is there for us, that it's in those uncomfortable moments in life, it's when we are stretched. It's when we have to use our spiritual faith muscles in ways that we haven't used them maybe ever before, or maybe in ways we haven't used them in a long time. We start to ache in places that we didn't know could hurt (laughs) But when we learn, we become uncomfortable and we stretch and we grow and we know that God is there for us because much of learning is that not just in school or studying that way, but in life. And when it comes to our faith, a lot of learning is uncomfortable, especially when I realize that I've done something wrong or I've missed the point or I've missed the mark and I thought I was chasing after Jesus, but I was really just satisfying myself. Learning becomes uncomfortable. What Scripture wants for us to be is we're all to be presented as mature in Christ. Now, mature in Christ doesn't mean you learn how to show up and sit in church and be quiet and not fuss when your daddy's talking, right? That's not what maturity in Christ looks like. I'm picking her. She won't know. You'll tell her later. It's okay. Maturity in Christ, it's so much more than just doing what we should do or showing up to the places that we should show up or maybe not going to the places that we know we have no business being because God has made that clear. But it's our goal as the church to present one another to other people as fully grown and mature in Christ is what Scripture tells us. Maybe when I talk about it, we're going to grow from being a spiritual infant to a spiritual adult, and not just an adult, because you can become an adult and still be really immature in life, but what we want to become are spiritual parents who are reproducing, who God is using us to invest in not the next generation, but a part of the church right now. Because the church is made up of all of her members, young and old. And thinking about maturity uh, recently, uh, on May 22nd, 2018, Michael Rotundo gained national notoriety when the New York 
Supreme Court ordered him to move out of his parents' house. Mark and Christina Rotondo gave their 30-year-old son several eviction letters and even offered financial assistance to help him move out, but their exhortations fell on deaf ears, so they had to take it to court to get rid of their 30-year-old son. The Camillus New York parents thought it was time for their son to move out and get a job or even willing to go to the court system to make it happen. When the verdict was given, Michael, the 30-year-old son that had to get evicted from his parents' house by the Supreme Court of the state of New York, he told Supreme Court Justice Donald Greenwood, he said, I need six more months. (laughs) The justice said, that son, that is outrageous. I guess I'll have to play his Xbox somewhere else (laughs) in another place. Maturity does not just come as time passes, although what we have experienced in life is that it certainly can help, namely from the dumb things that I do and the hurt that it causes and the ways that I don't want to repeat that and I want to grow from these things. Jesus tells us that the church is the way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To claim that all roads go to heaven would be like going to Hartsfield Jackson International Airport and get on any, just just put me on a plane. I want to go to Toledo, but just put me on any plane. They'll all get there. That's not how it works. It would be insane. Now, if we showed up in the wrong city, we could get on a plane or go somewhere else. But at the end, if we are in the wrong place for all eternity, that's it. It's forever. And it's permanent. What I don't want us to have is just this fake sense of, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do, or I have this figured out. Not a false security. We are to have security in Christ. Because he tells us that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover my sin and your sin and our sin. It is sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice on the Christ is enough so that God can look on me and forgive me of my sin. But to quote Paul, he says, but I can never use that as a license to keep on sinning, to keep messing up, to use that as an excuse or get out of jail free card because I know that Jesus will forgive and he will. But because God has made this great sacrifice on your behalf, what we're going to take is this opportunity that he's given us very seriously. Gated communities aren't a new phenomenon in America, but now there are communities that have faux gates out in front of them. A true gated community provides at least some level of security. Um, You've got to get in and check in and get out, and there's gates. It restricts some access, but we know um, the, the worst of the criminals It takes a lot more than that for them to be deterred. But people feel safe if there's a guard, if there's a gate, if there's a way that people can't get in so that they feel safe, that their kids feel safe, that they feel that they don't have to worry about things. But they're expensive to keep up and to have a guard and all these other things. So to remedy this problem, some builders more recently have developed a community with illusionary gates. The entrances are designed to look like it's a gated community in a secure neighborhood, but it's just... That, it's an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't provide any security. Uh, Ed Blakely is a co-author of Fortress America, Gated Communities in the United States, and he said these fake gates seem to have many of the same psychological effects as real gates. They put people on notice that the area is protected. All right. Well, practically one, 
This is going to be really profound. How stupid is that? Right? <laughs> it's not a real gate. It's not any real protection, but it kind of looks like it, and people feel like we're safe because there's this illusion of protection, that there's something there to keep me safe. William Fulton is an expert in urban development, and he noted that a lot of this stuff has to do with simply giving home buyers the illusion that they're safer, but that is all that it is, an illusion. Now, clearly, you ask anybody, what provides you more security, a real gate that limits access or fake gate? What I hope when it comes to our faith is that we don't have these fake gates set up and we feel like, oh, I'm okay. I'm protected. And the truth of the matter is that in Jesus that we are okay and that we are protected, but he says in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Life is hard. Life is even harder when you're living in a fallen world and you're trying not to follow after its desires and what it tells us is best. And when we're trying to follow after what our God who created us told us is best and we have an enemy, an adversary that is coming after us that wants nothing more than to keep us away from the presence of our Father forever. And unfortunately, sometimes I think it's not uncommon for people to have like a, this similar illusion spiritually of, hey, I've got these protections in place when really it's just a house of cards and just the slightest thing and it all comes falling down. It's only through a relationship with Jesus in community, in the church, that we find the ultimate protection that God has for us. It doesn't mean nothing bad will happen, nothing tragic will happen in this life, because it still does. And it will, because this side of heaven, sin has messed everything up. Everything, everything, everything has messed it up. And what we're waiting for as the church is that for Jesus to come back and to restore his creation to exactly how he created it to be in the garden before sin came in in Genesis. That's why in the very beginning of our Bibles, in the very end of our Bibles, it starts in a garden and it ends in a garden where God has restored and made everything new and as he intended to be. And the evil one is put aside from us. In fact, what happens a little bit later in Matthew chapter 16 is that Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that I am going to be killed. And that's okay because that is a part of the plan. In fact, that is the primary reason I am here. And Peter responds, no, no, I will protect you. That will not happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter who just got the question right before that, and he says, you are the son of God. And then when Jesus says, I'll be killed, Peter says, no, you won't, I'll protect you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because that would have interfered with what Jesus had to do to come and to make disciples and to establish the church that could come through his resurrection on the cross. I think one of the most powerful tools that our enemy has for us here for you and I living in our uh, free world in America is that he uses distraction and he uses busyness to keep us from the things that are of God. Think about it this way. Uh, the father received a son from the college, one of the college administrators telling about his son's poor academic performance. And parents, you never want that call ever, let alone when school gets a lot more expensive. 
An administrator noticed his surprise at the student's bad grades due to the boy's excellent SAT score and stellar high school transcript. Now, the father, Tom, became aware of his son's bad grades because of this call, and he, he knew all these extracurricular activities that his son was doing, so he's probably sleeping late, and that happened for it. And he explained to the dean, he says, I think I figured out what it is. He says, I'm pretty sure my son, his problem is attendance deficit disorder. His attendance deficit disorder. He's not showing up to class. He's not getting the things done. He has ADD. Well, he misspoke. But I think sometimes God just doesn't have our attention, but he needs to have our presence too. God needs our attendance. He needs us to come together in community as the church and be reminded of how great God is. And that's why we want to make it a habit of coming together as often as we can as the church to remind ourselves that we have a victory that is promised in Jesus. And what we want to do is we want to give God the honor that he's due. We want to remind ourselves that we don't want to be ADD Christians. We don't want to be attendance deficit Christians. You know, every stuff comes up. People get sick. You have family things. You have things that happens, and sometimes that happens on Sunday. And I don't think there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with that unless, unless it becomes a pattern where your priority isn't God. And if it isn't what God wants for us to do because my actions let people know where my priorities are. Not my words. Not my words. Many of you may recall the name um, Charles Lindbergh, and his famous airplane was called what? Spirit of St. Louis. First plane to fly across the Atlantic from Europe to America in 1927. He made his historic 33-and-a-half-hour flight from New York to Paris. Three years later, two Frenchmen reversed the flight plan and became the first pilots to successfully fly nonstop from Europe to the United States. And because it was risky, the two pilots, the plane that they flew on, do you know what it was called? The question mark. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of irony in flying. Well, the spirit of St. Louis, we learn about that in schools. We don't, maybe the French learn about that other one. We don't. But they didn't, they honestly did not know if they were going to make it. It had been done once, but they had no guarantees that even the best of their ability, if something happened and you're flying over the Atlantic, there's things that are out of our control, even if we might be the best prepared or did everything possible. Every risk that you and I takes in life has its own question marks, but also holds exciting possibilities. What Jesus tells us as the church is that the church wins. The church prevails. It does not lose. We, it may seem like in this life that the church is losing ground. And maybe in individual cases or communities that, that may be true. But the church wins. Satan is defeated and the church comes together and God will celebrate when their enemy is put in his place. Full victory. Nothing else. That's the encouragement that we have from scriptures that tells us that Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus rejoices when we say that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the work of the church. Let's pray. God, thank you for for life and God giving us an opportunity to come to you. God, we have the benefit of knowing what happens in the end and God, I pray that that gives every person here and everyone who seeks after you and comes to faith in Jesus, 
God, I pray that gives them comfort, knowing that even if I don't have all the answers right now, this week, this month, or in this season of life, God, I know that as a part of the kingdom of God, we win. Father, and there's no better side for us to be on. Father, I'm so grateful for your immense patience with us and with me when we lose track and we fall short. God, thank you for never giving up and always being there for us. It's in the name of Jesus I'll pray and ask all of these things. Amen.